it does sort of feel like one of those movies where like I'm hopping from stone to stone and then the stone behind me explodes. Welcome to Log Off. Everyone has an internet story to tell, and today we're getting Amanda Chicago Lewis's. Amanda is a reporter and writer. Her byline has appeared in all your favorite places like GQ, Wired, The New York Times, and Rolling Stone, where she wrote a regular column and tracked down the guy who stole Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's sex tape, the story that was the basis for Hulu's Pam and Tommy. I'm particularly excited to talk to her about a recent feature she wrote for The Verge about the cult of search engine optimization. But first, Amanda, let's start this podcast the way we always do at the beginning. What is your earliest internet memory? That's a great question. Hmm. I'm not going to have like great polished answers for you. I should have spent more time thinking about this. My earliest. Oh, you know what it is? Okay. So my dad is very um, like a gadget guy, very excited about the internet very early. Um, so we had even, we had CompuServe. This might've even been before CompuServe. I was probably four and my dad ordered cookies on the internet and from some bakery who knows where and i just remember like when the cookies arrived the whole family was so excited and shocked like it seemed like i just typed something into my computer and now cookies are here and like this sort of melding of um online space and i guess like meat space that felt really revolutionary and and kind of that I mean, I think it maybe is also about this sense of trust and like lack of trust because it was such an early moment on the internet where, you know, people were getting like their credit card information stolen and 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 all kinds of weird shady things were happening. We didn't even have like DMCA or like ch good child porn laws yet. Um, not that any of that stuff is that effective now, but um, it, it was sort of just this like the moment is it's is of the cookies arriving, like not even of being online. <laughs> Um, yeah, very exciting. What, what year would that have been when you were four years old? Um, I feel like this happened, I was born in 87. So I feel like this happened in like 91. Oh, okay. Um, oh, wow. but I'm sure my father, sister, and brother would all have their own versions of the story. Yeah. <laughs> 91. Like, that's... No, it was exactly at this time. And you were wrong about this. <laughs> And 91 is early adoption. That's pretty. Yeah. Incredible. No, my dad was very, you know, he, one of his um, childhood friends is like a, um, some kind of like maybe builds computers, like some kind of engineer along those lines. Um, and so, you know, they were the boomers that were like taking stuff apart and putting it back together in like the, the fifties and sixties. And so he always was just, he was so into computers so early and we always had Apple computers which was like very weird when I was in elementary school like everyone else had a pc um and then so what happened when you actually got your fingers on the keyboard what kind of stuff were you <laughs> I thought you were like when I got my fingers on the cookies I was like I ate those well, bitches yeah um, we know what happened then <laughs> when I got my fingers on the keyboard you know I mean right this is all like I'm like well what my parents would say <laughs> I, I definitely like broke something in the computer once and then they had to set up like a um like, I guess, like a kid management system. I don't know what you would call it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I feel like the earliest memories are like 
in chat rooms being like, no one knows I'm a kid. <laughs> Just like trolling people. Uh, and then also, you know, obviously a lot of like middle school trauma around uh, AOL Instant Messenger. A lot of hours in not Microsoft Paint, but like similar programs. I think there was like an early photo like I think there was a program called like I want to say it was called like Photoshop Deluxe but that couldn't have been what it was called it definitely had like a PSD it was like called PSD like some maybe print shop deluxe um but basically just like making you know like kid art on the computer <laughs> and like games video games super super into um a bunch of early computer games yeah I mean I can tell I mean <laughs> Like which computer games was I obsessed with? I was that was my next follow up. Was, okay, all right. So <laughs> let's see. There was one called Space Station. It must have been Space Station Feta because it was P H E T A. But I feel like I called it Space Station Feta because I was six. That game was amazing, so, and I was so obsessed with it that at one point my older sister like hid the application on the computer so I couldn't find it. Hmm. <laughs> Lemmings, great game. Oh. That was a um, Day of the Tentacle, once I was like in middle school, you know, that's like kind of iconic, but like probably after Space Station Feta, it's like hard to reteach yourself how to pronounce something when you were pronouncing it incorrectly <laughs> as a kid. After that one, the one I was most obsessed with for the longest time, and then I feel like I came back to it somewhat in high school and like had a whole other phase with was called Glider, where you were a paper airplane. Did you play that? <laughs> I vaguely remember my little sister playing that one and me, I think I was making fun of her for playing it. Okay. Playing. Well, now we see, now we see where we're at. Um, but uh, I loved that game. That, I don't know what it, it was like. The, it had like almost like Mario, this sort of like perfect simplicity to it. Like the rules mm. were very clear, but it was also very hard. I would say I got way more into computer games than I ever got into like console, like Nintendo stuff. Were you uh, creating anything back then? Like, when did you start actually, like, did you do any publishing as a kid that you're embarrassed of now? No. When I was in middle school, we had a computer class where we learned HTML and you had to make your own website through GeoCities. And I made an entire, I mean, I'm sure you, maybe you could find this on the Internet Archive. I don't, I feel like there's, that's maybe a contention now about GeoCities. I can't remember, but or, no, it was Angel Fire. It was Angel Fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was about the musical Rent. Okay. Which was really like an excuse to spend computer class, like typing out the lyrics to the songs from <laughs> the musical Rent. That's probably like my earliest internet presence, other than like the AOL nonsense. I was, I never got into live journal. I never really got into like blogging. I've always been very like reluctant to write about myself. Um, so I think there was never a like impulse to like dear diary on the internet in public. So how did you kind of hone your writing chops then? You were more old school and just kept it all offline? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I really think the best training for writing is reading. Um, so I just sort of read everything. Um, and then I think had pretty like conversational, I think like the voice in the things I wrote in like fifth grade, sixth grade are, is like still pretty consistent with how I write now and maybe how I think. Um, so what I'm saying is I have the mind of a fifth grader. Um, 
uh, I think I just like, I started reading voraciously when I was very, very young. Um, and I would read everything. So I would just read like novels that were kids, but also novels that were for adults, but also like my dad was in advertising and I read like every issue of brand week that like came to the house. <laughs> like I was reading the like weird trade publications that he was not reading. I read everything that came to the house and we got a lot of magazines um, because he worked in like print advertising. And so like we would get free magazine subscriptions because he would, they would be advertising in them and like, I would just read every single magazine. Yeah, I think I had like a handful of really good English teachers. It's like, why is my writing readable? It's like, Dr. Nicholson, thank you for that. Do you remember your first thing that was published online? My first thing that was published online, you know, well, like formally, I now I'm, I'm so when I... Okay. So like there was like college, there was like college newspaper stuff that I feel like might've been on the internet, but that was like also being published in print at the same time. And I, I mean, I feel like I can remember the first, the first story I did for like the college paper, but I don't remember. It must've been on the internet. I feel like they, there, but it was about like, um, it was about like Mormon missionaries who like, we're taking maybe semesters off to like go places and convert people. <laughs> um, but there was also, a, after I graduated school, I lived in Japan uh, and I, I feel like I was so, I had so much time on my hands that I had a Tumblr that would like very rarely post things I thought were funny. Like, I guess I was making my own memes is like kind of part of it, but there was like an English, like I taught English and there was like a, a worksheet that we did that I like turned into some kind of meme. Like I filled out the worksheet in a joking way and then sent it to all my friends and then put it on Tumblr. Do you remember what the compulsion was to put that on Tumblr? Like, did you just want a wider audience and more people to acknowledge it? Or that was just kind of the natural evolution of like, when you make things now, they go on the internet. I feel like it was, it was a combination of, I was so bored and so isolated. Talking to people through the computer was kind of my best way to communicate with people in English. Like there weren't a lot of other opportunities to talk to people in English. I lived in the middle of nowhere. And then I feel like I put it on Tumblr because it was the easiest way to share it with a bunch of friends. Cause this was like, I didn't have a smartphone. The Japanese um, cell, uh, cell phone network was like not connected to the rest of the world's cell phone network. Um, so everything had to be done through computers and not phones. And rather than, I guess, like emailing images, I was like, well, let me just throw this onto a site and then I can send you a link. Yeah, it was, a, it was, I guess. So the worksheet was like teaching. So that like, I'm so tired that I fell asleep in my cereal. Um, and then there were like little cartoons in, and there were like all these different ones on the worksheet that was like, you had to write a so that sentence under each cartoon and like the cartoons were really strange. And so I sort of wrote very, um, I haven't thought about this in so long, <laughs> like sarcastic, whatever sentences. When you decided to go teach overseas, did the internet like embolden you at all because you knew you had this communication path like back home or was that not even a consideration when you took off? Uh, I would say it was not really a consideration. I mean, it was 2008. So I oh. wanted to like not be 
uh, here. <laughs> I was, I just was like, I want to go like away. Like I want to be far away and like take a break. Um, and the internet was still, I was not hyper-connected, you know, mm-hmm. like I was in France last month, uh, and I could have been in New York. Like it wasn't that different because of where we are now, particularly with phones. But in 2008, you know, I had like a Japanese cell phone and I had, I could like talk to my friends in Japan, but I couldn't really, it was like a, between the time zone and the lack of like widespread smartphone adoption, it was, it was somewhat rudimentary. It was like, you could Skype, I mean, but you had to, Skyping was kind of like a big, that was nice. But, um, and I would like write people long emails uh, and they would also write me long emails. But um, yeah, I don't think it was part of the consideration. Okay. How did you eventually make the transition to professional writer? Yeah. How did that happen? Um, (laughs) (laughs) How did I make the transition to professional writer? Um, So I was, I was teaching, I was teaching for like five years. There was um, a period where I was teaching in Los Angeles. I was like running a high school journalism program and teaching English. Uh, And then I came to my first summer off. And just like now I'd be like, oh, amazing. Like I don't have to do anything for like three months. But at the time I was like, I must have been like 22 or something, 23. And I was like, I have a whole summer. Like, what am I going to do? I got to fill it with stuff. Uh, and so it was like a, a boyfriend of a friend of a friend worked at the LA Weekly. And I kind of like harassed him enough into like having coffee with me um, and then like letting me write for him. Um, and so I started doing it over the summer when I had like more time and then kept doing it through the next like two full school years, um, before leaving that job and full-time being full-time. Okay. Well, you're now like in that sweet spot where you, it seems like you can almost like pick your topics and write thoughtful features about them. Do you have any advice for... Does it seem that way? I'm glad it seems that way. Well, I mean, I'm just going off the frequency and the quality. Um, Do you have any advice for like someone who's trying to trudge through the current media hellscape and come out where you are? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? It does sort of feel like one of those movies where like I'm hopping from stone to stone and then the stone behind me explodes. Um, (laughs) You know... Because when I was doing journalism in college, uh, and then so when I was doing journalism in college and like wanting to do you know long form, uh, it was like oh well like get your started and all weekly, um, and even that kind of like last like throwing my hook on the thing as it was um, falling apart was like very tenuous. Like the stories that I was doing for LA Weekly starting in that, I guess it was the summer of 2011. Um, I was writing thousand word stories. I would interview between like five and 30 people or like do go out somewhere and like do a bunch of reporting. I was getting $30 for each of those stories. So the only reason that was possible is because I was making like 60 grand a year as a teacher. And now the alt weeklies are hollowed out and and not really the same certainly not LA Weekly I mean but I think the general advice or lesson there might be 
you need to have some other way to make money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unless you have a full-time job somewhere, you need to have some other um, way to make money. And that can be like whatever works for you. You know, like I can't make, I can't have a side hustle that involves writing because... I'm just not capable of doing that. I have friends who do sponsored content on the side or like write, ghost write, you know, various things that would like take away from my ability to do the writing that I cared about. Some people it's like, oh, it's better to have, you know, an in-person thing that like, you know, gets your social juices going so that like, then you can focus on writing another. So it's really like, but yeah, I think that's probably the best advice is like, you need to find a way to make money that's not journalism. <laughs> so depressing. Side. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like that path is almost gone. The all weekly one is gone. Yeah. There was also like a, a rite of passage period where, you know, you could write quick aggregation hits that were basically just trying to get stuff to move on social media and SEO. And that's kind of going away because of AI. Right. But also, where was that even going to lead? Like nobody was, this was like, I mean, I think there was a moment where there was like, oh, the social media manager. And it was like, yeah, but the social media manager is only ever going to lead you to doing social media. Like you're not going to be. Right. There's no, I mean, this is like basic stuff about how to get any kind of job. Like if you haven't already done the kind of thing they are hiring for, um, they are probably not going to trust you to do the thing. Um, unless you are like 21 and like you're in some like highly competitive internship program that's going to, you know, teach you how to be a finance money master or something. (laughs) So do you think those, you know, quick blogger type jobs, those almost like diminish your trajectory? It depends on what you're you're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, look at like Cord Jefferson, like Gawker to, you know the Academy Awards. What a trajectory. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you are, if you're only writing aggregation and there's, it's not the kind of publication where there's like room for advancement, you could get sort of like stuck in that. It's not like, it's not like they're going to be like, oh, your really short blog posts are so good. We're going to assign you a feature. That's, I think that's a really hard thing in any, um, in pursuit of any career, you know? You have to kind of like do the thing that you want to do on your own and show you can do it before anyone will pay you to do it. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure those paychecks even exist anymore anyway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> a job um, from seven years ago. Um, so let's talk about the people who ruin the internet. That's what the feature is called. It's about search engine optimization or SEO. It's part of a a larger exploration uh, by The Verge into how Google has turned the web into a place for robots instead of people. Um, my impression is it's long, it's good. Um, both the headline and the intro have that kind of hookiness that are necessary in the attention economy. Um, and most importantly, it actually justifies that clickiness without, like just by having actual substance inside of it. How did you kind of arrive at that headline to, to pull people in? The headline was um, from my editor, Kevin Wynn, who's like a genius, who's like a genius, Um, uh, pulled from something I had written in the first section, um, which was itself, I mean, I feel like this is like a story about what, you know, AI actually is and what SE actually is. Like, 
which was me summarizing what other people were saying and then questioning whether it was true. You know, I mean, I feel like the premise of the story was everyone seems, you know, everyone seems to think the internet has been ruined. Like, is that true? Like people are really upset about Google and Google results and like everything is really bad. Um, is that in fact the case? And now I'm looking into it um, because, I mean, and it, that had to sort of be the premise of the beginning of the story because when I was doing the research, um, you know, and I think I started with sort of this open mind, like I'm not a tech journalist. I'm not like, well, it's definitely this for this reason. And I've noticed all these things. I'm like, yeah, I don't know, but like, it's kind of like a vibes thing. Like, is it worse? Is it better? And then I started talking to people who were like experts in search and they were like, it's actually much better than it's ever been. And I'm like, and you know, there's sort of a moment like later in the story where that like set that like the opening sets you up for where um, I question reality <laughs> and try to understand like what's true. Um, and, and why what's true is true. Uh, but, but yeah, so I think the, the headline and the, and the opening section are sort of like an intentional provocation that reflect what people have been complaining about so that it can get deeper into, well, is that true? And if so, like what happened and, and where did that come from and whose fault is it? Uh, like I said before, you, you seem really selective about the stories you write. Um, what made you jump at this one? Was it like personal experience with search engines? Uh, no, I mean, I, I would say like, this was, this is like, like, basically there's very few stories that Kevin could ask me to work on that I would say no to. <laughs> there's like a deep, I think that's a, there's a deep trust there. Um, we've worked on like at least five features together over i mean since 2017 when he was at gq so um i would actually have to like sit and usually we do like one a year um but generally yeah i mean i think it's i think that's it's really about like when you're working with someone whose perspective and expertise you trust then the work is often, you know, like benefits from that. That makes sense. Um, early on in that piece, you refer to SEO experts in the following ways. People making money off everyone else's misery. Nearly everyone hates SEO and the people who do it for a living. The practice has destroyed the illusion that the internet was ever about anything other than selling stuff. And then you open the piece with like some pretty great scene setting, as you alluded to. You went to an SEO convention in Florida with a live alligator roaming the floor, kind of fitting in with all the predators. Um, given what you knew or assumed about SEO prof professionals going in, like how did reality match your expectations? So, okay. So first like minor, minor correction, the alligator party was like digital marketers sort okay. of like broadly and SEO is like kind of a core component to a lot of digital marketing, but um sure. I, those you know obviously when people are in that world it's like you have to split hairs um uh i would also say that like i actually didn't know very much about seo when i went into the story 
um, the stereotypes uh, of what an SEO is like, the sort of like hatred that people feel. Um, I just hadn't really thought consciously about it. And so I think like by the time I'm sitting down to write something and I'm trying to take someone on a journey, um, it helps to kind of start with, everyone is very upset for these reasons, like let's go from there, you know? Like, especially, I mean, certainly I had been aware of the sort of like percolating cultural feelings around like inshittification and um, people not really wanting to be online as much anymore. Um, but I think, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't want to give myself too much credit here. <laughs> I was like trying to channel um, what the reporting had led me to and what was sort of like the widespread perception of something um in a somewhat extreme exaggerated way to then start to like undermine it you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah did yeah, you that not about... answer your question at all <laughs> no it's perfect <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i guess we can kind of get into that good versus evil in seoville a little bit um yeah there's the cast of characters in the story is pretty wild there's like clearly shady people there are people who've acquired incredible wealth. Um, there seems to be some industry consensus that 80% of people in SEO are scammers, but that still leaves like 20% floating in some like non-scammer bucket. Um, the people who are doing good in SEO, like what does that actually look like? Like help, I mean, I think that like, what does good mean? Like, what is truth? Like, who is a trusted authority? You know, I think these are like, I, I don't know, part, I think part of what makes it helpful to sort of like follow my think for like many people to like follow my thinking through some of this stuff in the story or in, in other stuff that I do is that like, I'm usually pretty forgiving of like individual people and like the systems of incentives that they encounter. Um, and so, and, and I don't usually feel like I am an expert in something, even if I've spent like a lot of time researching it. And so I think, you know, I think it's funny cause it's like, people read the beginning of a story and they're like, Oh my God, I'm so angry. Like you think all these things. And it's like, no, I'm like trying to start with like what other people think. So then we can go into it. But I think the real, um, you know, key to like my perspective is like how I decide to like end the story, which is with like one of my very favorite people that I met. Um, oh my God, I'm very much blanking on his name right now, but the, um, the SEO that I met in Denver, who um, like was totally covered in tattoos, his whole face was covered in tattoos. And he had kind of a somewhat extensive like criminal past. He had been kind of roped into some like financial fraud and he had like served time for that. And all this like was still under kind of like a probation uh, situation from like the economic crime offenders unit. Um, and had been doing SEO for a long time. And uh, he was sort of just like, everything is a scam. Like all, you know, <laughs> businesses are in some way 
taking advantage of something because if you're not taking advantage of something then you don't make any money you know what i mean and he put it in a very funny like um it's like well you know there's the scam where it's like i'm gonna like take this old lady's money and build her a patio <laughs> such a like funny because i was like oh you're gonna take her money and i was like oh and do the thing that she's paying you to do um but so i, I guess what i'm saying is like i, I don't I hardly believe in like good people and bad people. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, like it's just a, like the internet is a place where people do business. People are always trying to like promote their own business. It's very difficult to kind of like do that in a way that, you know, there is some gaming or form of exploitation in any form of like making money because otherwise like you're just breaking even, you're not making money. <laughs> like I need to do something that costs me $2 and charge you $4 or I can't pay rent. Um, so I think it's like just acknowledging that at the core and it's like SEO are these cogs in like a much bigger system that's been you know, created by Google. You had some uh, really nice gets in here with past and present Google leadership commenting on the record, um, sometimes defiantly. Can you explain Google's stance on the quality of its search results, at least according to uh, Danny Sullivan? Yeah, and we have to keep in mind that uh, this came out like three or four months ago and that I did the reporting more months ago than that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to explain it with like maybe a metaphor and not particulars, but I think that from what I remember, Google was essentially saying like, well, the speed limit is 65. So I don't know why, you know, anyone's upset. Like the speed limit is 65. Um, and other people were sort of like, well, but like a lot of people are going 85 miles an hour and you're the ones that are supposed to be enforcing the speed limit. So like, catch all the people speeding <laughs> or like don't be so insistent on what the rules are if they're not being enforced i think that's kind of what it was uh and it's also not easy to write the rules for how like the internet is supposed to operate particularly when as soon as you establish a new set of rules there are people who are going to figure out how to how to game those rules yeah i mean i think also, the whole process is so much more accelerated than it was maybe like a decade ago, which I thought was very interesting. Um, you know, like, yeah, I was, there's, there's so much about this story I feel like I could talk about for like a long time. But I do like when people do things they're not supposed to be doing to gain, you know, clicks or uh, higher rankings, they might make a ton of money for a month and then get booted. Um, but in that month, maybe they make like... It was like $75,000 or something. So like, that's still something, right? You know, like maybe we have speed cameras and maybe we have cops on the road trying to catch people who are speeding. But does that stop the guy who was going like a hundred miles an hour who like caused a car crash that like killed three people? Like not necessarily. So I think there's sort of, it really gets to this, like these core questions about like, how do you create rules for a society but i that's also me being pretty generous because i feel like a lot of people are sort of like well 
Google only cares about making money now. And now like your search isn't going to be very good because um, they just want ad dollars and they don't care about making search accurate. And um, there's also all these things where like their attempts to make search better or more truthful or like not including disinformation or whatever have like actually for a lot of situations made search worse but like in the process raised questions about like how do you like determine what information is the most valuable and i think you know everyone has felt this stuff and noticed this stuff and it's so much easier to complain about it than it is to like write the rules yeah you got a little bit um introspective about that in the piece and it got me thinking about whether the results really are that bad or if we're just spoiled assholes at this point who want like perfect information instantaneously blasted into our brains. Yeah. Um, but also there have been real changes that have changed the way that the results come out that are infuriating. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry. So, I mean, if it's bad now, like what do you consider the golden age of search results? Like was, is there a time you look back fondly upon? Is it just like when there was 10 blue links and that was it? No, I mean, I, yes. And that's so particular to like, my life and like what I was doing and when I was like really using it a lot. But I think um, probably, I mean, now knowing the history in so much detail, yeah, probably like 2012 to 2016 might've been like the best time before they started. Like, um, I mean, the hyper personalization stuff where it tries to tell me what it thinks I should be Googling when it's not what I'm Googling um, as a person who does a lot of like semi, you know, obscure research into whatever I'm working on, like, just show me what I'm actually Googling. Like, don't tell me what you think I am Googling because other people have been Googling it. But also, you know, the EEAT stuff is, and I get to this, like at the end of the piece, the sort of, um, experience, expertise, authoritativeness, and trust elements where, for certain topics like financial information, medical information, um, like sites are kind of like vetted by some, you know, set of institutional authority, you know, figures who have decided how to weigh certain things over other things. Um, and that came about in the wake of the 2016 election, right? Like the right, disinformation exactly. that came so with this is Like all this, right. I mean, this is sort of like, it's the history of the internet and the history of Google, but it's also like, what happened in response to the election in 2016? What happened in response to the pandemic? Um, right? Like, are people way less online or not wanting to be online as much now because online products have gotten shittier? Or is it because everybody was like, like the way I was in Japan, like very isolated and like only really able to connect with people through devices for um, a long time? And now we're like, enough, I want to be in person. Um, <laughs> kind of hard to say, but uh but yeah, certainly the EEAT stuff, the sort of like attempts to make sure the information was true and not like misleading people uh, into, you know, drinking, um, what was it like hydroxychloroquine or whatever the thing that um, was the thing that was supposed to cure um, COVID, but in fact, I think it was like poison um, or like whatever, putting bleach in their veins, um, things that are quite dangerous. Uh, which I'm sure it's like, does Google care or does Google just want not to have liability in that situation? Yeah. Uh, there's that, but there's also like a lot of really helpful 
almost like folk wisdom type things about health that were much easier to find before. And now it's like, all right, well, like, why am I even Googling this? I might as well just like go to a doctor. <laughs> yeah, the like, EAT... I guess it's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The EAT stuff. Like it sounds good in theory, like yay for trusted sources, but it also kind of flies in the face of the internet being a level playing field and being able to find like yes. whatever you want to find. Yeah. Right. And so, but that's everything about that. Every one of these things is like an enormous, complicated thing where you can't just set a rule and stick to it but this is the same as we're like don't ask me to like write the constitution like that's it's like <laughs> this stuff is really complicated to like have a rule that is like and it's always this and there's no exceptions it's like that's difficult so is it just always going to be this way like google resetting the rules people breaking them and then having to you know move the goalposts uh i would not make a prediction like that i would definitely i think there's a internet where Google doesn't have nearly as much power, um, hmm. potentially. Uh, but I think, I don't know, I'm not great at, uh, predictions, but I, I think that like the internet is a very dynamic place. And I think society, or at least Americans right now, there's like kind of a, um, starting with the 2016 election accelerated by the pandemic, uh, a feeling that it's not a place where information is reliable. It's certainly accelerated by AI. AI. Um, it's just kind of like information salad stew with like rocks and glass mixed in. So can we go back to, you know, experts and calling people who know what they're talking about and ask a friend? Yeah, I was good. Just, just about to ask like for people who are, disillusioned with what they're seeing in search results like is there something they can do is it just as simple as like relying more on human beings and like go into the library it's like what are you searching for i mean i think the first thing is and this is like one of the things i've told people if you are looking for something what you want to buy like which leggings do i want to buy or you want to hire someone for something like an accountant or like a contractor just understand that like anything you see in Google is going to be totally manipulated by people who want you to buy their product or, you know, buy their services. So don't think you're getting good advice. But if you're like, oh, what was the name of the person who wrote that novel that was published in like 1974? Like, yeah, like, why not? You know, you can get that on Google. That's a, that, but don't ask like a large language model. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think the real question is like Google is a, the real thing is like Google is a tool. There are certain cases where it is useful. There are certain cases where it is not useful. I think it is particularly not useful when you are trying to decide how to spend your money, which is probably too bad for Google because that's how they make their money. Do you see anything kind of unseating Google's spot in our digital lives? Like we're talking about like offline options and things like that, like TikTok rising and being more popular with kids. Um do you see anything like becoming the new Google right after you told me you don't like making predictions? Um, I, I'm going to say no, in part because the landscape is now so fractured that the idea that a new business, it's hard for me to imagine a new business could come in and control our perception of the truth so comprehensively. I think that would be really unusual uh, and, and unexpected. But also like, 
like where are we going to be in 20 years? I don't know. Things might be really different. But like um, Google had like not exactly first mover advantage, but like to a certain extent, they had some degree of first mover advantage in terms of like putting out a like non-commercial, like information quality first, simple search engine before that was like actually good at returning results before anyone else was doing that specifically. I think that's fair to say based on how easily it sounds like Yahoo was manipulated and like the other kinds of search engines that were available in the 90s. Um, and I think that it was also, they had the moment, they had the timing of like when everyone was sort of coming online. So it was like, oh, this is the best new thing at the moment when millions and millions and millions of people are coming online essentially for the first time. And it's like, oh, well, this is the thing. And then it's like, okay, great. I'll just rely on that. You know, the next Google will probably be in a like different technology, if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the ironies of <clears throat> this piece is, you know, you do a really good job of kind of writing out a crash course in the history of SEO. And when Google came along, there was already people doing SEO or kind of gaming the internet with weird stuff like manipulating domain names. And at the time, Google almost felt like a savior against those things because yeah. their results were so much more accurate and complete, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think it's really funny that it's like all the things that we don't like about Google now are the things that they didn't have initially and is why they drew so many people in. And then once they had everybody in, they started like slowly adding in the stuff that like nobody liked about Yahoo in 1996. Yeah, they didn't have advertising to start, right? I think they right. even said that that would manipulate results. Yeah, very famously. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Wait, here's what I am also going to say about the piece. Like, okay. I have nothing against SEOs as human beings. And I know that like, I can only keep saying that so many times and they're not going to hear me and that's fine. They've all moved on. But like, I don't know, people take real offense to like, you know, a, a pithy summary of other people's anchor. It's like, I don't think you're a bad person. I'm sorry if it came off that way. Do you want me to ask you like your final judgment call on SEOs? <laughs> final judgment call. <laughs> Just individual humans doing their best in a complicated world. That's my final judgment call. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, so you spend a lot of time on your pieces like this, which obviously results in a lower frequency and your byline appears in different places. What's the best way for people to keep up with your writing? That's a great question. Come on, I'm leading you towards your newsletter. Let's go. I know, oh yeah. I was like, I, but like, I don't, I actually don't send out a newsletter every time I publish something because sometimes I don't think it's good enough. <laughs> I'm like, and I haven't even figured out what to do about tiny letter closing. So, um, all right, so set a yeah, Google sure. alert. Yeah, sign up for my newsletter. I'll probably send you like two emails a year that will each be one paragraph. Uh, if you, I'm, I'm trying to post more on Instagram. Um, I generally, I generally post everything I write on my Instagram stories. Um, yeah. All right. Since so she won't I'm say, not, it, I'm just, web... I'm not very good at self promotion. Like I think that's, that's all right. Yeah. I will, since you won't say it, the the website is amandachicagolewis.com. That's where to go. Let's Google it. Uh, <laughs> I hope you're at the top of that. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to our... It's great, the predictive questions on Google. I mean, this is like, this is a whole wired feature. I mean, wired, Um, you know, they do those videos, but all the yeah. predictive questions, uh, whatever, the predictive questions about me are funny. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm getting Pam, Pam and Tommy right afterwards. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it's even more different from what it was. But I did at one point screenshot. It said, like, has Amanda Chicago Lewis won a Pulitzer? And I feel like I need to send that to my mom and just be like, frame it. This is the closest I'm ever going to come. People are wondering about it on the Internet. <laughs> That's close enough. Uh, all right, let's get to our stupid questions we asked everybody. Um, tab check. We have a fun little feature where we ask people how many tabs they open in their browser. So how many do you have open right now? In the main browser? Your browser of choice. All right, hold on. Let me... It could be your phone browser. That's that's uh, that's where all my damage is done. Oh, that's a whole different... I mean, that's like an, that, this is, that's like an additive question. Are you... Are you oh, well, also, uh, I quit... Um... Oh, and is this... Oh, I quit the Chrome that... See, okay, well, here's what we could do. We could add all the ones, five plus three plus six plus four plus 10, 19, three, six, three, 20. And then I think that's probably all the ones that, although they might've. So, okay, all right, 23, 29, 32, 42, 52, 61, uh, 71, and eight. So like almost 80, but I might've lost some when I updated Chrome to do this interview. And then I would say between, there's probably at least 100 to 150 in Firefox, and then Chrome, and then Safari separately on my phone. So is that because you're in the middle of something, or is that just typical? That's typical. Okay. <laughs> Wait, so you're using different browsers? Do you have like different projects tied to different browsers? Yeah, I guess like uh, that's on that's on my phone. Generally on my computer, I'm only using Chrome unless I like am incognitoing somewhere else. Um, or have like multiple accounts in something open in different places. But um, yeah, I guess on my phone, it's like Firefox is like basically for the New York Times and then like Chrome and Safari for everything else. I think it's about like logging in and I don't want to like log in in like the same place. I don't know. <laughs> Habit. That sounds like a fun way to keep track of everything. Yeah. But um, then I also like when I, when I'm doing research for something, I will have like 400 tabs open on my oh, computer. Yeah. And then when I'm pausing the research or when I'm like moving on to something else, I will like copy every link into a document so that they're all there. And then I'll like satisfyingly close the windows. Um, yeah. It's a good system. I just system. minimize that window and move on to another one. So I'll oh, just have God. all those tabs open somewhere else. It's great. Yeah. I don't have very uh, high processing power, so I don't know if that's, <laughs> was for me <laughs> if you can't see it it's not doing anything it's fine okay. um let's get into some of our favorite questions about the good and the bad parts of the internet uh when you open your social media apps what are the algorithms feeding you right now um i feel like i would have to open them i mean twitter is feeding me nazis um <laughs> i never look at the like for you stuff the ads i mean i feel like you get like suggested accounts on instagram yeah but i just assume those are people that like have looked at my profile and then didn't follow me because i like know them from the past or something <laughs> i don't know how does that work <laughs> where are they getting that 
You know, it's it's just funny. I was like, my husband and I have talked a lot about how like when he goes into his like suggested Instagram page, it's just like all boobs. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's like, are you following a lot of like boob accounts? And it's just like, no, it's like, no, it's like, he's not. He's not engaging with anything. I think they're just like, man, give him boobs, more boobs. <laughs> And then we looked at mine and mine was actually a lot of boobs too. And I was like, maybe they just like boobs do really well. Maybe we're like a boob heavy house. I don't know. That sounds like a conversation you guys need to have. I'm <laughs> staying out of it. It's pretty funny. No, but you know, it is like, it will, it will advertise. I try and keep the sound off, but then I like forget. Mm-hmm. So it'll like advertise something like someone has mentioned in the last like 24 hours. And I'm like, we were making fun of that brand. So jokes on you (laughs) i'm also i'm pretty intense about like not buying things through instagram ads like i feel like everyone every story i've heard about someone who has bought something from an instagram ad has like ended poorly so (laughs) yeah i can't tell you how many like t-shirts i've bought because i'm such a sucker and they come four months later from china like i forgot i ordered it at that point yeah uh favorite accounts to follow on social media Ooh. all right there used to be, I feel like they haven't posted in a while, but there's like a NBA like art uh, account that I Art like. But Make It Sports, we had him on the podcast. He's amazing. Um, I feel like there's another one. Another? Oh, maybe it's called Ball House, like H-A-U-S, like Bauhaus. Oh. I feel like I need, I need to like actually open Instagram to like tell you what. Um, I'm very interested in this. All right. So first of all, yeah, my For You page is like, oh yeah. Okay. It's like the Olsen twins. It's like Taylor Swift. It's, and now that I'm saying this with the app open, I'm just going to get more of it. I see like, I see Jennifer Aniston. I see clips from Friends. who's like not a show I have watched or cared about in a very long time. I see Paris Hilton. I see Fiona Apple. So yeah, I guess like sort of, but like how much of this is just this can't be like what I'm engaging in. This must be, except for the Olsen twins. I'm a, I'm an Olsen twins person. Um, <laughs> the rest of this seems kind of like they are going off of my demographic information. Yeah. It's uh, what you want. Oh, I see some like art world stuff, random memes. Okay. Favorite accounts to follow. Let's see. I found ball house. It's got a bunch of underscores in it. Yeah. 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 Ballhouse is great. All right, least interacted with. This is what it is because it's like people I don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's like I feel like it's all very like personal in the sense of like. I mean, I know someone. There, I had an interaction with someone who I was very suspicious of, and later uh received rather credible credible information that they are like allegedly a con artist and that was very satisfying to me because i had been very suspicious of them uh i really enjoy their instagram presence like with this information in mind um that's like very that's like a yeah when you say scam artists are we talking like high level or are we talking like I think like low level, like low MLM. level, like, yeah. um, come to my Tupperware party. Oh no, not like MLM. Like, okay. I think I don't want to be too specific. Not that anyone's like watching the scaring about like who I follow on Instagram, but like, uh, it's, it sounded more like, 
just like once you're sort of once someone is like oh yeah this person like conned a bunch of people i know out of like tens of thousands of dollars you're like Ooh. oh that's like really shady and then you're like oh like your whole way of presenting yourself very clearly reflects that i also i have like kind of a, a, a like long-term long-standing theory that like most people have kind of an inverse there's like an inverse relationship between their uh online presence and their real world presence so um people who are seem very like warm and friendly and like fun online are often like really shy and quiet and maybe even cold in person um and then like vice versa so I guess what I'm saying is like I don't post much (laughs) but I'm working on it I'm trying to post more that's healthy yeah uh what is a corner of the internet people might be surprised you're interested in what is a corner of the internet I don't know. I mean, my whole thing with basketball, I like have, I'm not, (laughs) I got very into basketball a couple of years ago in a like reading about basketball and the culture around the NBA without actually watching any basketball games. I do go through periods where I will watch basketball exclusively through podcasts. Like I'm listening to my favorite people talk about it, but I'm not actually taking the time to watch the games. Yeah. Oh, I was like, oh, I mean, um, was it, uh, oh my God, what was it called when it was at the ringer and now it's like somewhere else that like Jason Concepcion, like NBA thing. I was like, I w- would watch it every single week. And oh, like, network, that yeah, was how I learned great. about what was happening in basketball. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He's so funny. He's the best. I'm trying to remember what the show is called. He's got a new show too. Right. Cause then he, uh, now it's called something else. And then yeah. at a certain point I stopped watching it, but, um, there was like, I had like two or three years of hardcore fanship there. I felt like the people, like when people were like, oh, they're getting their news from the Daily Show. It was like I was learning about basketball through a show commenting about basketball. <laughs> it's the best. Last thing that made you truly laugh online. Okay. So I think the the thing to do there is to go to my screenshots because I'm <laughs> I'm more of a screenshots than a take photos person. Oh, 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 this is really funny. What is this? This is... um. I was reading a piece, <laughs> this is fucked up. I was reading a piece in the Ankler, you know what the Ankler is? Yeah. It's like Graydon Carter's thing, um, which like they bold all the names um, and they made reference to, this is just like the most, this is a screenshot from Monday. They bolded George Floyd and like the next section is like Greta Lee, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Jason Segal, Eric Garcetti. And then like, it's like George Floyd. It's like it's just like trivializing and absurd. Like, why are we bolding? Like, not that it just the whole thing felt really. It just it called attention to how dumb the practice of bolding the names. Yeah, were. like his publicist asked for that. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, yeah, so I would say most of my just like a bunch of like screenshots of like totally ridiculous. Oh, this is okay. This is a good one. Uh, so PR. I used to write a lot of stuff about weed, so I still sometimes get like um, uh, PR pitches. This is a, a screenshot of the subject line of an email I received. The subject line is "Interview to discuss first ever women's apparel line by a cannabis brand." <laughs> first ever. First ever. 
women's oh apparel. And it was just like, there's so many things in Canada. She's like, we're the first ones to do this. It's like, no, you're not. What? <laughs> it's like, certainly you're not the first people to make women's t-shirts. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I think maybe that's the like I I can appreciate a good meme, but like more likely I appreciate things that are not trying to be funny. Yeah, just unintentional hilarity. That's great. Yeah. All right, let's go to the dark side. The most scarring moment on the internet, if you can bring yourself to disclose it. Ooh. Like it was scarring in the moment or it is scarring to remember. <laughs> Dealer's choice. It's up to you. Whatever comes to mind. I'm going to say this. I definitely at an age that was far too young to do this, uh, had a, like a scanner in my like childhood bedroom. And we're going to bring it back to boobs. I like full on scanned my boobs and definitely sent them to someone. I was like trolling in a chat room, not scarring at the time, scarring to think about now. In fact, I've scarred everyone who just heard that. And I, I hope that didn't get like passed around. Who knows? It was also, it wasn't cute. It was like, <laughs> it was like, that's not, that's not like yeah, a scan- cute angle. <laughs> yeah. Scanner's not the way to go. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I wish I had that image. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How sorry. do you? I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no, it's good. I'm, I'm starting to pick up why Instagram's showing you what it is. Yeah, exactly. How do you pry yourself away from devices or log off? Do you have any special tactics that might be helpful to others? Um, I don't know. I have kind of a like sick degree of self-control. <laughs> I don't think that's... What's that like? Except for around scanners, I guess. I also had... Um, yeah, I, um, I spent about five and a half years recovering from like a very bad concussion that involved screens like making me ill uh and so i would say i don't know if i'll ever go back to the same level of internet consumption as before that so your tip is to get a concussion yeah that's my tip also putting your phone in black and white putting every all your screens in black and white that's a good one that's a good one uh, where would you be without the internet? I would probably have a regular, well-paying job in a functioning media industry. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's say it goes bye-bye tomorrow. What's the one thing on the internet you would save? Hmm. <laughs> the thing that is coming to mind, like there, I don't know why this is coming. It was recently discussed. That's why this is... There was, um, I did a story many years ago about people who like, I think it was actually about artistic bongs, like, like very creative looking bongs. And somehow this led to this image of someone had like rolled a blunt and made the blunt look like a snowman, like tipping its calf. Uh, and this is like an image that I have sort of like prominently displayed on my, uh, Spotify account. And I would say, I would love to not lose that image. It makes me laugh every time I look at it. Just like a little snowman blunt tipping its cap. So not not like a website or any content or anything, just that, that picture? It was like, download the contents of Wikipedia so I can look at it later. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, we're already losing the entire internet. Like I might as well, you know, save something hilarious. That's fair. Get rid of it all. Thank you, Amanda, for this discussion and for your contributions to the internet. This is Ryan Perry saying, log off. The internet will be there when you get back.
It's a great tagline. Thank you for having uh, me. I don't know if it's that great. I think but, it's great. 